we just heard two stories about people with leprosy getting healed, one from the Old Testament from before Jesus and one from the New Testament with Jesus. And we're thinking, yeah, 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 God heals people. What's the big deal? But it is a big deal. Because back then, they didn't have the kind of medical care that we do. And back then, people routinely died from a cut or an injury or an infection or an illness that today we would just take a pill for and we would be fine. And leprosy was actually the worst. Now, most of us think leprosy was a skin disease, but it's not. It's actually neurological disease that kills the pain receptors in your body. So people with leprosy can't feel pain. You may think that sounds pretty good. But the problem is, or actually the gift is, pain is a gift from God that tells us that something's wrong inside of our body. And so we avoid things that might damage us and damage our body because they hurt. But people with leprosy, since they don't hurt, they get a cut or a bruise or a scrape or a burn, and they don't take care of it because it doesn't hurt. And then it gets infected, and then it gets worse. And then it literally starts to rot as it gets gangrene. And, and people with leprosy often end up losing fingers and toes and ears and noses and, until they die. Ew. Ew. So now you can understand why Jesus was compassionate. Because you see, leprosy is not just a death sentence physically. It's a death sentence socially. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, the law of Moses says, if you have leprosy... You need to leave your home and live out where other people don't. You need to wear torn clothes so people know to stay away from you. And if anybody comes close, you're supposed to yell, unclean, unclean, which is why those 10 lepers were outside of town when Jesus was coming into town. And while from a distance, they were yelling at him, asking him for mercy because they were following what was supposed to happen. And Jesus saw them and kind-hearted, compassionate, caring guy that he is, he healed them, healed all 10 of them, even though one of them was a Samaritan. Now, we hear that and think, so what? But back then, Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. They actually still don't. There's a small community of Samaritans still left in Galilee in Israel. Debbie and I were there this summer. We went to Samaria, and they still don't get along with the Israelis. The problem stems from 2,500 years ago. When the Babylonians came and they conquered Israel, they picked up all the Jews, they took them into exile into Babylon for 70 years, and they brought in other people from other countries to work the land and to worship this God of Israel. And so when the 70 years was over, the Jewish people came back. There's people living in their land and they're worshiping their God and they're not doing it right. And they've been, the Samaritans and the Jews have been sniping and snipping at each other for the past 2,500 years. Racism is nothing new. People have mistreated each other because of their size or their shape or their ethnicity or their language or their skin color. They've been doing that since, well, forever. Forever. Which is why we work so hard around here to love each other. Because folks in the Messiah family gladly and happily and blessedly come in all sizes and shapes and colors. Well, back to the story. So Jesus sees these folks and he, he, he heals them. And you can figure he's going to heal the Jewish people. He's going to heal the Jew, those nine Jews. He's going to heal them because, you know, they're the chosen people. They're his own people. They, of course, deserve God's love. But, you know, that Samaritan... 
Well, that just shows Jesus is extra kind, extra compassionate, extra loving. And the, and the Samaritan himself, he just was lucky enough to be hanging with the right folks at the right time to get some of that blessing slosh over on him and he gets healed. But then we find out the Samaritan is the only one who comes back and says thank you to Jesus. Well, maybe he did deserve it then. Okay, the story's okay. Everybody got healed because they deserved it because that's the way that God works, isn't it? Okay, so we can understand why God would heal all of these people, why Jesus would do that, because, okay, they deserved it. But what about that guy in the Old Testament? What about Naaman? Now, Naaman is from Aram. Aram is north of Israel. What it today is Lebanon and Syria. And they were at war back then, but they're kind of at war still, aren't they? And they still are. Debbie and I were up on the Lebanese border this summer, and there's a fence that goes along the entire border with big red signs about every hundred feet written in Arabic and in Hebrew and in English warning you about the minefield that's on the other side. They're still fighting. Why would God heal Naaman? Naaman is not only a foreigner. He's not only a foreign soldier. He's the commander of the Aramean army which regularly goes down into Israel raiding to kill people and steal their stuff and kidnap their children to take them home to be slaves. In fact, Naaman wouldn't know about this God of Israel if a girl that he had kidnapped and given to his wife as a slave hadn't told him that the God in Israel could heal him. So when Naaman comes down into Israel and he goes to Elisha's house, Elisha knows who he is. Elisha doesn't want to do anything for him. Elisha doesn't even go out to talk to him. He sends a minion out because God made Elisha, and he says, you've got to help this guy. So the minion tells Naaman, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times, and he reluctantly goes and does it, and he's healed. Now, we can understand why Jesus would heal those guys in the New Testament. They're Jewish. They deserved it. They said, thank you. But Naaman, if anybody does not deserve God's love or God's care or God's healing, it would be Naaman. So why would God do that? For the precise same reason that Jesus healed those ten. And it's not because anybody deserved it. It's because of God's grace. God's grace. God healed all 11 of those lepers because of His grace. Now, depending on where you grew up and going to church, you probably have an idea in your mind of what the word grace means, but it may or may not be complete. Grace comes from the Greek word charis. Charis is in charismatic, as in charisma, and charis literally means God's divine influence on my heart and its influence in my life. Grace is two parts. It's God's divine influence on my heart and its reflection in my life. It's God's love and my response. God's love combined with my response is what makes grace happen. Sadly, throughout the ages, however, God's people have tended to emphasize either one side or the other instead of both. Our Catholic brothers and sisters define grace as merit. Merit. And you know how you get merit, like merit badges in Boy Scouts? You have to earn it. And in Catholic understanding, you get your merit because you go to church, you take the sacraments, you ordain the right people to be your priests and your bishops, and you do all of the church stuff 
And as you do, you, you garner merit, and that's how you get your grace. And that's why so many of our former Roman Catholics among us feel guilty all the time because we all know none of us deserve God's love. We all know that we mess up. We all know that we make mistakes. And we're just hoping that we can come and do enough of this church stuff to, that we can, we can gather enough merit to maybe tip the scales over so we can get into heaven. And yes... God wants us to go to church. Yes, God wants us to take the sacrament. Yes, God wants us to do the right thing. God wants us to do the stuff. But remember that doing the stuff, our response is only half of grace. The other half, the first part, is God's love for us, God's everlasting, eternal, unconditional love. And God loves us, which is the part that Protestants tend to emphasize, to protest against Catholics. That's where the word Protestant comes from. We're protesting against the Catholics that they made those mistakes. And Protestants emphasize God's love and they define grace as unmerited favor. Did you hear that? Unmerited favor. Specifically to say, we're the opposite of those people. And the Protestants say, well, you know, the important thing about grace is to read in your Bible that God loves you. And yes, God does love us, always has, always will. But if God loves you and you love God, don't you want to respond? I mean, if you love God, don't you want to be with God in His church? Don't you want to be with God's people in the church so you can encourage each other? Don't you want to take the sacraments? Don't you want to have all that the church offers to experience God? So Protestants emphasize God's love, and Catholics emphasize our response. Which one's right? Well, they both are, and neither are, because each of them's only half of grace. God's love and our response combined together, which puts us Anglicans right in the sweet spot of grace because we are the bridge church between Catholic and Protestant. And what we try to do is hang on to the best of Catholicism and the best of Protestantism and put them both together because that's how we experience grace. And so as Anglicans, we, we revel in, we wallow in God's love even as we respond to Him enthusiastically and joyfully to try to put that grace together so that we experience all that there is of God and not just one side or the other. Now the good news is, in grace, God always loves us. He always does His part. The response, our part, we're not always as constant, are we? We're not, we don't always say yes to Jesus. We're not always as excited to see Him as He is to see us, are we? But the more good news is that God's love has been surrounding us from the very instant of our conception. That even in the womb, from the time that we first became human, God has been calling us to himself, wooing us, attracting us, and trying to nudge us towards a response. God's grace is his love for us and our response to that love. And God always loves us. He always does his part. So what's our part? What's our response? Well, let's, let's do the same thing that those lepers did in the Bible stories today. 
when we recognize God's love or presence around us, when something good happens to us, when there's an answered prayer or God takes care of a need, or if life is good or at least not as bad as it could be, let's do what those 11 lepers did. Like that Samaritan, let's say thank you. Let's tell God, thank you, thank you, God, thank you. Thank you for air, for water, for food, for clothing, for shelter. Thank you for a family, for our blood family and for this parish family that God gives us to encourage each other. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we live in a part of the world where people are seldom shooting at us and trying to blow us up like so many other places in the world. Thank you. Thank you that we live in a country that has freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom to protect ourselves, freedom from government mistreatment of us. Let's thank God. When we recognize how good God has been to us, let's do what that Samaritan did and respond and say thank you. When God has been good to us and we recognize his love, let's respond like Naaman did in the Old Testament, and do what God says, especially if it's simple. All God told Naaman to do is go dip yourself in the water seven times and you'll be healed. And he argued with God about that because I could go to another river. It'd be better than the Jordan River. But he did it and it worked. And what does God ask us to do as his people? Well, spend some time with me in the Bible. Spend some time with me in prayer, both talking and listening. Spend some time with me in church with your brothers and sisters to love and serve them and encourage each other. Spend some time loving and serving those neighbors, those people who are not yet part of God's family, and let them know how much I love them too. So when we feel God's love and we understand that, let's respond like Naaman did and do what God says. And finally, let's respond like Naaman did and worship Naaman's healed. He comes back to say thank you. He wants to give a gift, and Elisha won't let him give the gift. Elisha won't take it because Elisha does not want Naaman to think that he has bought his healing. He wants Naaman to understand it's grace. It's God's love that healed him, not what Naaman had done. So Naaman asks if he can take two mule loads of dirt back home with him, which to us sounds you know, a little strange and certainly not a little dirty. But he takes those home because in those days, people thought that gods had geographic jurisdiction, that they were kind of like the police. You know, a police officer in the city limits of Orlando is a police officer there. But if that police officer comes to Winter Garden, they're just a citizen like the rest of us. They just dress funny and carry a gun. And so they thought gods were that same play, same way, so that if you're going to worship the God of Israel, you need to be in Israel. And as if he couldn't be in Israel, he was going to take some Israel with him so that he could dump it out, stand on that pile of dirt, and he could pray and thank and worship that God who had been so gracious to him. Now, did Naaman become a Jew? Did he start obeying the 613 commandments of the law of Moses? Of course not. He didn't even know what they were. He probably didn't even know there were the Big Ten Commandments. But he was smart enough to know if he's going to worship this God, he probably shouldn't worship another God. So he asks Elisha for forgiveness in advance. 
Because he knows that when he goes back home, part of his job as the commander of the army is he carries the king into the pagan temple when it's time to worship the idol and the the statue that's in there. And he says, when I bow down with the king, would you please forgive me? And, And Elisha says, go in peace. Which means the worship that we offer God from our heart is more important than necessarily obeying all the commandments or doing all the right stuff, which is good news because what's the right way to worship God? Well, it depends on where you go to church, depends on where you grew up, depends on what your culture is. But what that means is our response from our heart, that's the important part, which means let's worship God. Let's worship God in spirit and in truth. And that means that the folks worship God just as much as we do if they take communion only a couple of times a year and we take it every Sunday. We can worship God by singing hymns out of a hymnal or doing the words up on the screen. We can worship God by doing this or by doing this. We can worship God by doing this or by doing this or by sitting down. We can worship God by handling snakes or sitting still. We can worship God all of those different ways as Protestants and Catholics, and all of the above. Because that's what God wants, is our worship. Grace is God's love for us and our response to that love. And the good news is God always loves us, always has, always will. God always does His part, His half of grace. What about us? Let's do ours and respond.